Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts, of George Mason University and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, find other episodes, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is January 17th, 2012, and my guest is Eugene Fama, the Robert R. McCormick Distinguished Service Professor of Finance at the Booth School of Business at the University of Chicago. Gene, welcome to EconTalk. Thank you. My pleasure. Your impact on the field of finance has been immense, particularly in, well, in a whole bunch of areas, but one that stands out is uh, the efficient markets hypothesis. I'd like you to sketch out the evolution of that idea in the field, how it was understood initially, and how it has changed over time. How much time do you have? <laughs> well, four or five hours, but let's try to keep it to under 10 minutes for this first question, if you can. Okay, okay. <laughs> well, I'll go back to the beginning, at least the way Harry Roberts tells it. Uh, Holbrook, working in the 30s, uh, started to become interested in whether speculative prices moved randomly. So he was mostly an agricultural economist, so he was looking at agricultural uh, commodities. And he took a series of random numbers, accumulated them, and brought them to his faculty at Stanford in the faculty lounge, I guess, showed them to them, and they agreed they were agricultural theories. So he thought from that that uh, maybe a random walk kind of model would work pretty well for uh, agricultural prices, prices of other uh, commodities. So, but then there was a big gap from there to like the end of the 50s. And what opened things up was the coming of computers, which made computations much easier. And <laughs> the most readily available data was stock price data. So basically, statisticians, econometricians took the data and started doing calculations uh, on it. And they were calculating uh, you know, the autocorrelations, which are estimates of the how predictable returns are based on on uh, past returns. And then they stopped and said, economists got into the mix and uh, said, okay, how would we expect prices to behave if they were set based on all available information, which is basically the efficient market hypothesis, but it wasn't stated in those terms at that time. Um, so they kind of said, okay, I think there should be a random walk, which was pulled out of the air, hypothesis pulled out of the air. And what is that, when you say it's a random walk, explain what that means. That means that successive changes are independent of one another. It also means they have identical distributions, but that part's not important. Right. It's basically the independence part that's uh, important. So it basically means that you can't predict future returns based on past returns. And tomorrow... Yesterday doesn't tell you anything about tomorrow. And, right. Returns from day to day or month to month are basically independent of past returns. Now, that was a, uh, a very extreme hypothesis. So let, let, let me give you uh, an example. You wouldn't say that about tomatoes, for example. Tomatoes are going to be cheaper in August than they are in January, uh, for the most part, because there's a seasonal in tomatoes. And that has to do with Supply and, and demand, mostly supply of, of uh, tomatoes. But 
There's a similar thing operating in uh, prices of stocks, bonds, whatever. So basically, there's an expected return component, what people require in order to hold these uh, securities. And there's no reason that that has to be independent through time. There's no reason why that's not predictable or why it doesn't go, why it isn't, for example, there's lots of evidence that it is higher for on stocks during recessions and lower during, during uh, good times. So there can be predictability in returns that's consistent with an efficient market. Now, what people didn't understand in the beginning, <laughs> am I getting too technical here? No, nope, you're doing great. Keep going. Okay. What people didn't understand in the beginning was that propositions about how prices should behave had to be joined to a statement about how you think they ought to behave. So... In other words, what you need is some statement of what we call a market equilibrium. What is the risk-return model that you have in mind underlying the, the, uh, the behavior of, of, of prices and uh, returns? So, for example, stocks are very risky. They require a higher expected return than bonds. Um, and you have to take that into account in the test. So there is this joint, what I call the joint hypothesis problem, which is basically what I added to the, to the mix, but it's kind of an important part of it. It says whenever you're testing market efficiency, you're jointly testing efficiency with some story about risk and return. And the two are joined at the hip. You can't separate them. So people infer from that that means that market efficiency basically is not testable on its own, and that's true. It's not testable on its own, but the reverse is also true. <laughs> risk-return models aren't testable without market efficiency. Most risk-return models assume that markets are efficient. Very few exceptions. And, and so when we say markets are efficient, what do you mean by that? What you mean is that prices at any point in time reflect all available information. Now, that idea, which – and, and you know, there's – What's the distinction between the weak form and the strong form that people talk <laughs> those about? Are, those are words that I used in 1970 that I came to regret. But <laughs> because I, to, I was I was trying to categorize the various tests that were done. So I call weak form tests tests that were that only used past prices and returns to predict future prices and returns. Then I call semi-strong form tests tests that use other kinds of public information to predict returns, like an earnings announcement or something like that. And then I call strong form tests, tests that look at all available information. And those are basically tests of, if you look at uh, groups of investment managers, when you look at the returns that they generate, you're basically looking at all the information they had to generate to, uh, to pick securities, and what's the evidence that they had in information that isn't in prices. So that's what I call the strong form. And empirically... Where do we stand today, do you believe, in in what has been established about those various hypotheses? Well, uh, the, <laughs> believe it or not, the, the weak form one has been the one that's been subject to the most, what we call, what people call anomalies in finance. In other words, things that are inconsistent with either market efficiency or some model of risk and return. So the big one at the moment is what people call momentum, that 
prices seem to move in the same direction for short periods of time. So the winners of last year tend to be winners for a few more months and the losers tend to be losers for a few months. Um, in the strong form tests, well, I mean, Ken French and I just published a paper called Luck versus Skill and Mutual Fund Performance, which basically looks at the performance of the whole mutual fund industry in aggregate, all together, and fund by fund. We try to distinguish to what extent returns are due to luck versus skill. And the evidence basically says you've got skill in the extremes, but you've got skill in both extremes. <laughs> right. Which is, that's something people have trouble accepting, but it comes down to a simple proposition, which is that active management trying to pick stocks has to be a zero-sum game before cost. Because the winners have to win at the expense of losers. And that's a kind of a difficult concept, but it shows up when you look at um, the, the cross-section of mutual fund returns. In other words, the, the uh, returns for all funds over very long periods of time. What you find is, if you give them back all of their costs, there are people in the left tail that look too extreme, and there are people in the right tail that look too extreme, uh, and the right tail and left tail basically offset each other. If you look at the industry as a whole, <laughs> the active management industry basically holds the market portfolio. Right. So, but is that... Now that that's, that's all before cost. If you look at returns to investors, then there's no evidence that, any, that anybody surely has information sufficient to cover their cost. Which says that for an individual investing, certainly an, an, someone like me, right. uh, that is, who doesn't spend any time or very much time at all looking at, in my case, no time, but let's suppose I spend a little time trying to look at what would be a good investment. The implication is to go with index mutual funds uh, because they can't – actively managed funds can't outperform. Uh, well, no, it's, it's more subtle than that. Go ahead. What's more subtle about it is even if you spend time, you're unlikely to be able to pick the, the funds that are in good. Right. Because so much of what happens is due to chance. Is due to chance. So for me, the, the, the lesson is um, buy index mutual funds because the transaction costs of those are the, are the smallest. Yeah. And uh, since no, very few actively managed funds can generate returns with any expectation other than chance – to overcome those higher costs, I can make more money with an index right. fund. Now, it's very counterintuitive because we looked at the whole history of every fund fund return returns, and if you sort them naturally, the ones in the right tail are really extreme. There's I mean, some they, great ones, yeah. They they beat their benchmarks by three to six percent a year. Nevertheless, only three percent of them do about as well as you would expect by chance. Now, what's subtle there is that by chance, with 3,000-plus funds, you expect lots of them to do extremely well over their whole lifetime. Sure. So these are the people that books get written about. Because they look <laughs> smart. <laughs> but the evidence basically says there's a pretty good chance they were just lucky. And they had sustained periods of luck, which you expect in a big sample of funds. Right. Of course, they don't see it that way. 
No, of course not. <laughs> uh, a, a friend of mine who's a hedge fund manager, before I made, made this call, I asked him what he would ask you. And he said, well, his assessment is that, oh, efficient markets explain some tiny proportion of volatility of stock prices, but there's still plenty of opportunity for a person to make money before markets adjust. And, and, and of course, in doing so, make that adjustment actually happen and bring markets to equilibrium. Somebody has to provide the information or act on the information uh, that is that is at least public and certainly maybe semi, semi-public. What's your reaction to that comment? <laughs> that's the standard. That's the standard comment from a an active manager. It's not true. Um, Merton Miller always liked to emphasize that you could have full adjustment to information without trading. If all the information were available at very low cost, prices could adjust without any trading actually taking place. Just bid ask prices change. Uh, so it's not true that somebody has to do it. But the issue really is. This goes back to a famous paper by Grossman and Stiglitz. Um, the issue really is, what is the cost of the information? And I have a very simple model in mind. In my model, information that's available is available at very low cost, and then the cost function gets very steep. Basically goes off to infinity very quickly. And therefore? And therefore, <laughs> prices are very efficient because the information that's available is costless. But what's the implication of that of that steep incline? It's just that that takes it takes it, it, information's it, it, it not doesn't very. Pay, doesn't pay to try to take advantage of additional information. It's not very beyond, valuable. Beyond the stuff that the, no, it's very it's very valuable. If you were able to perfectly predict the future, of course, that would be very valuable. But you can't. So it's, it's infinitely costly. So do. your your assessment that you just gave me of the of the. Um, of the state of our knowledge of this of this area, I would say is that remains what it has been for some time, which is at the individual level certainly um, there's no return to um, all all the, all prices prices reflect all publicly available information for for practical purposes for an individual investor for an individual investor and for an institutional investor. Correct. So, how many people? What proportion of the um, of the economics and finance areas, you think agree with that? <laughs> well, uh, finance has developed quite a lot in the last fifty years that I've been in it. Um, so, I would say the people who do asset pricing, which is you know risk and portfolio theory, risk and return, <clears throat> those people are pretty much in. Think markets are pretty efficient. If you go to the people in other areas who don't aren't so familiar with the evidence and asset pricing, well, then there's more skepticism. But I I attribute that to the fact that the life finance, like other areas of economics, has become more specialized, and people just can't know all the all the stuff that's available. Sure, uh, a lot of people have viewed the current crisis in. Well, let me, let, me, let me stop there, too. There's an incredible demand for market inefficiency. Explain. <laughs> the whole investment management business is based on the proposition that the market's not efficient. Sure. I say to my students, you take my course, if you really believe what I say and you go out and recruit 
and tell people you think markets are efficient, you'll never get a job. Yeah, it's true. Now, so there's a certain bias you're saying towards how people assess the uh, the evidence. There's a bias. The bias is based on among investment practitioners, I mean, you know, professional money managers. The bias comes from the fact that they make more money from portraying themselves as, as active managers. Sure. That's true in macroeconomics as well. We'll get to that, I hope, a little <laughs> later in the conversation. Um, but I was going to ask you about the current crisis. and it, well, I have some unusual views on that. Yeah, I know. I want to hear them. So the, <laughs> the standard, I'd say that the mainstream view, and I recently saw a survey I'll put a link up to that said uh, it was a, an esteemed panel of economists. You weren't on it, but uh, it was still esteemed. Uh, both in, in finance and outside of finance, and they asked them whether uh, prices reflected information, and there was near unanimity. Uh, some strongly agreed, some just agreed. But there was also near unanimity that um, the housing market had been um, a bubble and had had been had, – Oh, the nasty B word, yeah. Yeah, had, had ex- was showing some form of, um, of what we might call irrationality. Um, well, okay, so I have strong feelings about that, getting mad about the word bubble. Why? Because I think people see bubbles with 2020 hindsight. I don't think they're, the, the term has lost its meaning. It used to mean something that had a more or less predictable ending. But now people use it to mean a big, big swing in prices, that after the fact is wrong. Well, well then, all, it, all, all price changes after the fact are wrong. Because new information comes out that, ma- that makes what people thought two minutes ago, wrong two minutes later. Uh, and I think that's the housing bubble. If you think there was a housing bubble, then might. If you could have predicted it, that would be fine. But the reality is all markets did the same thing at the same time. So you have to really face the fact that if you think there was a housing bubble, there was a stock price bubble, there was a corporate bond bubble, there was a commodities bubble. Are, you, are economists really willing to live with a world where there are bubbles in everything at the same time? And your explanation then of that phenomenon? My, my explanation of it is we had a big recession. I think you can explain almost everything just by saying we had a big recession, a really big recession. And why do you think we had a really big recession? Well, you, <laughs> I've heard some of your podcasts. I'm with you. I don't think macroeconomists have ever been good at knowing why we have recessions. We still don't understand the Great Depression. True. Although Ben Bernanke would argue and Milton Friedman would argue and he did before he passed away that monetary policy is a huge part of it. Um, Well, let me let me let me respond. I I had this discussion with Milton actually, um, and. What I pointed out was, from their own data, they show that there were massive free reserves throughout the Great Depression. And my point is, you can't force people to hold demand deposits or to make loans or to demand loans. Well, you can, but it's not very productive. It's not very productive. That M1, M2, those things are basically endogenous. Yeah, I I have the same feeling. The only thing that's sort of exogenous is the monetary base. What did Milton say to that? <laughs> all, the, all arguments with Milton, with Milton were 
<laughs> Interesting. Even when you won, you thought you lost. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> I had plenty of those. Uh, so, are you saying that that's analogous to our current situation? Oh, no. What I'm saying is that, for example, people want to blame the recession on the, the housing sector crashing and subprime mortgages. Uh, but so if you're an economist and you think about that, you have to be saying that there were some misallocations across markets, that margins weren't being equated across markets. That's pretty hard to accept because um, people are acting in all markets. They're, they're working in all markets. It's a pretty tough one to, to swallow. Well, a lot of people swallow it. They, here's, here's their version. They say things like, um, you know, there are these things called animal spirits that you can't measure, but that doesn't mean they're not real. That people get all excited about a particular asset class. In this case, it was housing. And as those prices start to rise, it becomes rational to speculate that it will continue to rise. And as that happens, as long as – and as you – even you would admit, people are making money along the way. And then they don't. They stop making money and the prices collapse. And um, this happens from time to time because of irrational exuberance. And that's just a fast, an aspect of capitalism. That's the standard counterpoint. Okay, but it wasn't just housing. That, that was my point when we started. The same thing was going on in all asset markets. Well, the timing isn't quite identical for all asset markets, right? The stock market... The housing market starts to collapse, I think, around mid-2006. Well, it stops rising, right. And then, and then begins a steady decline. That decline was nothing compared to the stock decline. I when, mean, when did, but the, when did that happen? I don't know the exact timing. It's not around then. It's later, so right? The onset of the recession caused the collapse of the stock market. I mean, it was the time, the recession and the collapse of the stock market, the corporate bond market. All of that basically coincides, but that also coincides with the collapse of the the um, you know securitized uh, bond market. More, yeah, the mortgage. The prime mortgages. Yeah. And all that. Well, that yeah, that happens through oh seven oh eight. I guess that there is some parallel. Yeah. So you're you're going to reverse causation. You're I gonna... don't know. See, I'm I'm not saying I know. What I'm saying is, I can tell the whole story just based on the recession. And I don't think you can come up with evidence that contradicts that. But I'm not, I'm, I'm not saying I know I'm right. I don't know. I'm just saying it's people, trouble. Read, people read the evidence through a narrow lens. Yes, they do. Confirmation bias, all kinds of other, you know. Well, and the rhetoric then acquires a life of its own. So there are books written that basically all say the same thing about the, about the crisis. And you're arguing that they've essentially cherry-picked the data – well, I'm, I'm, they just look at pieces of the data, and the fact that the, you know, the housing market collapsed is taken to be the, the cause, but the housing market could collapse for other reasons. People don't just decide that price is not high anymore. There's, there has to be supply and demand somewhere in the background. Well, we did have people holding second and third homes who didn't have the income and capability of repaying sure. even a first loan. Sure. Standards were relaxed. Yep. But then you have to look on the supply side of the, you know, the lending side. The people lending to these people had the information. Yeah, they knew it. They knew it. No, there's no, there's no doubt that they were not. Uh, I don't think they were fooled. Um, they, they were not 
uh, overly optimistic about the value of those loans. They were willing to do that because they could they could sell them. The puzzle then is why you no, know, but that's that's just right. The puzzle is why were they able to sell? Them? Correct. Now my claim is that the people who bought them did it with largely borrowed money. These no, are, no, no, that's not true. These were bought by people all over the world. Correct. Not with borrowed money. They remember now. Savings has to equal lending, always. I mean, for everybody that's that's short bonds, is a a borrower, somebody is on the other side. They're long. Yeah. The net amount of leverage in the world is always zero. That's true. So you can't tell a story based on leverage. So what's your story? I have, I have to think. I have to think that through. It's, it's undeniably true, but <laughs> I'm not going to argue with that point. But I want to. So, what's your explanation of why well, people I, bought I these things? I have no explanation. I, I, again, I'd say the market crashes because there's a big recession now, even a minor depression, if, if you like. So, remember now, all the people buying these subprime mortgages all over the world—they were the ones basically making the loans in the end. They were sophisticated investors. They weren't. You yes, and they I, were. It was sophisticated investors. Most of them, many of them. Institutions, big banks all over the world. Uh, so they thought these things were appropriately priced. They might have been at that time, but they weren't exposed. So you're not going to allow me to make the claim that they're, the incentives they faced uh, to worry about how appropriately they were priced were uh, distorted. I, uh, incentives, incentives to make money are always there. Correct. question is whether the market lets you make money. So these people that wanted to securitize all these mortgages, they could have failed at any time in the process. And they would have failed big time because in order to do these things, you have to initially finance them yourself. So when the investment bankers were bringing out these securitized mortgages and other kinds of securitized assets, they initially held them. And they held them afterwards, too. They, they held many of them. Yeah. Well, initially, they held them all. Because they're, they're bundling them together. They have to come up with the capital, and then they can sell them. So they could have failed right at that point, because the market says, forget it, we're not paying you par value for these things. But when they did fail, which they fundamentally did, right. because, at least for them, even though the world wasn't leveraged, uh, they were leveraged. Sure. Uh, they should have gone out of business, but they right, did not. Exactly. But they did not, most of them. Huh, that's awful. That's, that's the worst consequence of this whole episode. So do you, my, my argument, my narrative, is that the anticipation of that distorted their decision-making. Do you think sure. this? Sure, but that doesn't, that doesn't get you past the – that doesn't satisfy what goes on in the demand side. It doesn't address that. Why? Because the people on the demand side have to buy these things. Well, the people who were buying them and selling them were fundamentally the same people, right? <laughs> okay, so if greed causes me to put out securities that I know are no good, why would I hold them? Uh, because I can hold them at a very low cost. There's, there's, I have uncertainty. Uh-huh. I don't know what's going to happen. Uh-huh. My, um, there's an upside. There's a downside. And there's only a low cost if you know you're going to get bailed out. Say again? There's a low cost if you know you're going to get bailed out. There you and I agree. Right. So, but you don't know that. There's a probability. Right. It, it, my argument is it dulls your senses. It, it doesn't 
you don't. Well, sit- I think it does. I agree with you there. If you think there's any probability that you will bail, be bailed out, is going to distort your, your Correct. decision. Correct. So. Is your argument then that that was relatively unimportant? They just no, no, my argument is it can't explain why people who weren't generating these things and weren't going to be bailed out by, uh, you know, investors in Norway, whatever. Um, why were they buying them? Well, I'm happy to admit that some people just made a mistake. Um, after the fact. Yeah, after the fact. Ex ante, it certainly they didn't think they were throwing away their money. No, right. And a lot of those people making those investments around the world, we bailed them out too, right? Their European banks got some of the benefits of our. Yeah, because they were mixed into the same. They were mixed into the same pile that involved our own investment banks, mostly investment banks, not actually. Banks. Correct. Oh, there's a little, yeah. Um, uh, and so they got bailed out in the process. So if they were holding uh, CDSs that were issued by AIG, they got bailed out. Correct. <laughs> and many of them were. Although the number, I think Goldman was the number two holder of those. Yeah. The first was, I can't remember, it was a foreign bank. It was either French or German. Um, so you you have publicly said that that was a mistake, certainly those bailouts. You should, we should have let them fail. Yeah. And what's your what's – your, It's irrelevant because there, there's no political regime that will let that happen. Correct. But let's suppose – let's just imagine – Let's live in a fantasy world for 30 or 40 <laughs> seconds. Right. Uh, suppose on March of 2008, Ben Bernanke and um, Hank Paulson and the others who got together to talk about the impending bankruptcy of Bear Stearns had just let them go, mm-hmm. had let them declare bankrupt. You know, they would have they would have opened for business Monday morning without any um, uh, without enough cash to cover their positions. They right. would have had to tell their Creditors that, sorry, I can't honor the promise I made to you uh, the other day or the other month. Right. Um, and you won't be getting the payment you anticipated. The justification for the intervention was that if we had let that happen, there would have been an enormous crisis. Credit markets would have frozen up, and we would have had a worldwide depression. Uh, your- I don't know what the last part. See, that's, that's what we'll never know. Um, the, the issue is how long would it take to straighten things out? And I think it's really overrated that it would take a large amount of time. So banks fail all the time, and the FDIC goes in and just kind of draws a line in the sand about who's going to get paid and who isn't, and then the stuff is just distributed, put up for sale, and everything goes on. Um, I don't know how long it would take to to solve a multiple failure uh, problem. We'll never know. I mean, well, the Lehman Brothers bankruptcy is still in process, which is right. now over three years old. So right. one argument would be – I mean this was the argument made at the time. Like you, I'm skeptical about it, but it, it's, it's, it has some legitimacy. It's that, well, bankruptcy is complicated enough as it is when it's a large investment bank with international creditors like Bayer or Lehman. It would yeah. take a long, long time. In the meanwhile, right. everybody would be thrown into turmoil. Blah, 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 blah. Right. Do you think there's anything to that? Uh, it's, it's possible. But, you know, what, what's happened in the Lehman cases is that it's, it's held up by mul- multiple jurisdictions. So you have to, you have to settle, you have to settle with the, the British debt holders and all the debt holders. Japanese, the Korean. Or, or all have their own set of what happens in a bankruptcy, laws about what happens in a bankruptcy. And that's, I think, what they've been fighting over for three years. Pretty clear. What assets are there, I think? 
But isn't that an argument for why, for justifying what Bernanke did and, and, and Paulson did? Well, I don't, you know, I don't know. Because who knows what would have been done uh, if all of them went down. Well, the argument would, was it'd be, the, the, the be pro- chaos. The problem, the problem really is that the investment banks weren't subject to the, to the same disposition rules that would face an ordinary commercial bank. They're not subject to the FDIC. Correct. Uh, and that, the FDIC basically can come in and arbitrarily do it. That, that's what you, that's what you buy into when you sign up for it. Correct. Whereas for the investment banks, the, they're not really banks. And they're not subject to those rules. Now the, the problem, the ongoing problem is that you haven't killed their incentive to finance themselves the way they always have. Correct. Well, I guess, you know, my claim is that part of the problem is that we gave a regulatory advantage to AAA-rated stuff, which allowed very large and different amounts of leverage compared to other stuff. That gave an incentive to these folks to find more AAA. I mean, the amount of AAA is essentially, until recently, is just there's just not enough of it to go around if that's the most profitable thing you can do because that's the thing you can leverage. So they found a way to invent more of it. Um, and that included, you know, not just the things we've been talking about, but European sovereign debt. Hey, that's safe. Let's <laughs> leverage that too. So, right. <laughs> so once we said, this is the stuff that you can make scads of money on because you can leverage it and use other people's money. Um, you're slipping back again, though. Because? You're, you're saying that people will buy this stuff even though it isn't. AAA. Correct. Why? Well, that's the puzzle. Is it because they were stupid? We're talking, about, we're talking about the world's most sophisticated institutional investors. So is, is the counter-argument, excuse me, not the counter, the alternative argument, just that people just made a mistake? Uh, after the fact, definitely. Right. Whether it was a mistake before the fact, that, that involves estimating the probabilities of extreme tail events, which as you know, it's very difficult. Yeah. So, where does that leave us? <laughs> <laughs> it leaves us. Storytelling, of course. Good storytelling. Storytelling, right? Which is very entertaining, but yeah. not convincing. Not, not so helpful. Um, I don't find it convincing. Uh, before I forget, I was going to ask you, uh, has your, I don't want to miss this chance to ask you this, does your research inform your own personal portfolio decisions? Oh, has, sure. And has it over time? Oh, sure, always. Has it changed over time? Uh, well, I'm, I'm not as young as I used to be. So. That's part of the theory, too. Right. <laughs> so my portfolio has become somewhat more conservative, but I'm also a stockholder in an investment management company, so that part of it's very unconservative. Yeah, it's true. Uh, recently, a related question to what we were just talking about before that, uh, recently the government published the transcripts of the Federal Reserve uh, deliberations in 2006. Uh-huh. And I don't know if you've looked at that. I uh, know. Well, one of the most, one of the most obvious um, things you learn from reading those transcripts is, well, first of all, there's a huge amount. This is 15 really smart people, again, talking about savviness. 15 very savvy, smart people. Their job is to try to understand what might happen next that could be dangerous. Uh, and in 2006, we were on the edge of a, certainly a, a collapse 
in the housing market, uh, and as you argue, maybe just a general problem coming that would be unforeseeable. But what was interesting is that they made the same mistake that um, that I made at the time, and I heard lots of other people much smarter than I am make the same mistake. They said, well, it's true that there could be a, a, a housing price fall. It's been going up a lot for a long time. But the housing market's a small part of the – especially subprimes, a small part of the overall housing market. Housing's a small part of the overall investment market. So if there is this problem, if this does occur, it's not going to be much of a consequence. and We don't have to worry about it. Now, one of the things I think that was mistaken among – certainly among for me as someone who's not very well versed in finance, and I think most economists are not very well versed in finance, is that we did not understand – the role that leverage would play if asset prices fell by a relatively small amount. Do you think that has been a lesson that some people have learned uh, from this crisis? And is it should we learn that lesson? Because I've heard I, you. I I've, don't know. So leverage will put some people out of business. Correct. Uh, so what's the problem? Well, the problem is is that if lots of people go out of business at the same time, uh-huh. it, it allegedly has a. Uh, a multiplier effect, hate to use that phrase, yeah. uh, but that there's some credit market contagion, systemic risk, et cetera. Yeah, that's, that's, that's a word I don't think existed 20 years ago. But Which one? Systemic. Yeah. <laughs> but, wouldn't you, but wouldn't you argue, let's go back to our, our mutual yeah. friend, Milton. Uh, certainly Milton would argue that the contraction of the money supply uh, – at the onset of the Great Depression, uh-huh. precipitated by bank failures, was something that the Federal Reserve should have paid attention to. What could they do? Uh, they should have injected liquidity into the system. Well, but if you have massive free reserves, what's that going to do? Yeah, that's a problem. Well, again, I wish Milton were here. Um, I, I'm mystified. Um, I'm mystified by that whole um, by monetary policy generally. As anyone who's listened to these, well, I am too. I mean, I've heard in the uh, podcast of, of this program that I've listened to, I've heard everybody talk about the Fed controlling interest rates. It's always escaped me how they can do that. Yeah, I'm, I'm mystified by it myself. But I'm in finance, so you got an, you have an excuse. <laughs> <laughs> now, you know, it's uh, when I when I interviewed Milton in 2006, and I asked him why there had been a change in public discussion at least of what the Fed does from changing the money supply to instead changing inter- – manipulating interest rates, right? Uh-huh. His answer was, well, that's what they say, but that's not what they do. Mm-hmm. They like to say they manipulate interest rates because it makes them feel powerful. All they really do is change the, the monetary the, – the, the, the base. Yeah. And in fact, he said, um, you know, if you look at M2, that's the thing to look at. Um, well, that's the thing to look at if you want to know what's happening to business activity, but it's not something you can do anything about. Yeah, that's the that's that's. Um, I'm with you there. Do you have any? While we're on that subject, do you have any thoughts on why the Fed's paying uh, interest on reserves? Oh, absolutely. Why? <laughs> because they know that if there's an opportunity cost from these massive reserves that they've injected into the system, we're going to have a hyperinflation. So what's so, the point of injecting the reserves if you're going to keep them in the system? Exactly. So what's the answer? The answer is, this is just posturing. So what's actually happened? That debt is now almost fully interest-bearing, the reserves that they've injected. 
So they've actually made the problem of controlling inflation more difficult. Controlling inflation when they didn't pay any interest focused on the base, so uh, cash plus uh, reserves. But now the reserves are interest-bearing, so they play no role in inflation. It all comes to cash. It all comes to currency. And I don't, that's a kind of, currency and reserves are still freely interchangeable. That's what the Federal Reserve is all about. So I think they've lost it. Now what happened? They, they went and bought bonds, long maturity bonds, and issued short maturity bonds. It's nothing. They didn't do anything. So why, but they're smart people. Right. Ben Bernanke's not a fool. No, no. If you could get him alone <laughs> in a quiet place with no one else listening, and you, and you could corner him and say, Ben, what were you thinking? What do you think he'd say? I don't know, but I wouldn't believe it. <laughs> do you want to in, the, in the sense that, at most, he could have thought he was going to twist the yield curve. Yeah. Lower long-term bond rate. But that, now I'm going to looking at the international bond market. It's wide open. Even though they're doing big things, they're not that big relative to the size of the market. Yeah, I, I, I am mystified by it as well. I don't have an explanation, but well, I've, I've a, the, or, or let me put it differently. So, if I look at the evolution of interest rates, is it credible that in the early '80s the Fed wanted the interest rate, the short-term interest rate, to be 13 to 14 percent? No. <laughs> not really. <laughs> Arguing, you're making the argument that it's endogenous, that they can't control it. They, 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 they maybe can tweak it a bit. They can do a lot to ex- inflation expectations. That'll affect interest rates. But so, otherwise... So know, this is the... Um, I'll turn it around. All international banks think they can control interest rates. And at the same time, they agree that international bond markets are open. Yeah. Those two things are inconsistent. Correct. Now, it reminds me of this um, uh, CNN reporter... Uh, credible insight into economic policy. He said uh, macroeconomics, he was talking about macroeconomics generally in fiscal policy, but he could as equally as well be talking about central bank policies. He said politicians who think they can control the economy are like a little kid who's playing a video game. He hasn't put the money in yet, and he's watching the, the arcade game do all its bangs and bells and whistles and noises, which is an advertisement for the game, and he, he's pushing the buttons and he's attributing all the successes on the screen to himself, <laughs> even though he hasn't put the money in yet, because right. he misunderstands the underlying process that generates the um, what he's seeing on the screen. Right. There is some truth to that. Um, a lot of truth to it. Well, let's let's turn to fiscal policy, okay. which you've written some um, interesting things on lately. You have been very skeptical of, uh, as have a few others. Uh, and by the way, I would add, before we get into this, I should just mention that your view that it's an open question as to whether the crisis was averted, a crisis was averted by these uh, rather remarkable interventions by the Fed and the Treasury Department in the last few years, it's not a mainstream view. Certainly most economists believe that – and I, I'm, I'm with you, but most economists believe that, that the Fed and, and the uh, Treasury and, and the policymakers did a good thing. But they well, say that, 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 that's not taking into account the long-term cost. For sure, and that would be true of most of these interventions. Um, I always find it remarkable that you know, the auto bailout was a success, quote, because no, very few people lost their jobs, as if that's the only effect we would ever want to look at. Well, the long-term, the long-term effects of that are horrendous. Yeah, and it's not clear that they saved very many jobs either. Uh, but yeah, clearly they changed the incentives. 
Um, that just changed the incentives. They they changed the ordering of of uh, precedents and contracts. That's yeah. something that's really dangerous. Yeah, they abrogated the rule of law. It's right. very depressing. Uh, but on this issue of, of fiscal stimulus, most economists in our most most economists believe it's it's a good thing. It works. Uh, we are in the minority who suggest that maybe it isn't effective. And you recently wrote a piece suggesting, I would argue, that suggests it's, quote, never effective unless uh, it's well spent. And I would contrast it with the Keynesian view, which I heard come out of Joe Stiglitz's mouth personally, because people always think this is this can't be what they really believe. But I heard him actually say, it doesn't matter what you spend the money on, it's all stimulus. And you are very much on the other side. So explain why. Well, I, when he says it doesn't matter what you spend the money on, I think he thinks there are multiple choices that would all be good. He doesn't think that if you just wash it down the sink, it's, that's good. Oh, no. He said when, when pressed, he was asked if you pay people to dig ditches and fell them back in, would that stimulate the economy? And he said yes, but it's not as good as doing something productive. I can't explain it. It's a mystery to me. It's a mystery to me, yeah. too. But, but he's not on the show right now. I wish he were. Uh, I tr- I'll try to get him down the road. But in your view, uh, w- talk about what you think the effectiveness of stimulus is and why you're skeptical. Well, you know, the, his, his, this is a case where you can't be sure because if you look at the empirical evidence, it basically allows you to say anything you want because the estimates of the effects of stimulus a subject to un- so much uncertainty. Uh, so I think the, the, if I interpreted Christina Romer's stuff properly, what they're, or her, she and her husband's uh, stuff, what it says is that the only thing that clearly gets a pretty good statistical support is permanent tax reduction. Um, and then the other stuff is you just can't say anything. About so, I think that's probably the. I'm an empiricist in the end, so I have to say you just don't know. I mean, I have my position that I think it's a waste of money because it'll it'll all be wasted, and eventually you have to you have to finance you have to finance it now, which means eventually you have to pay back the future generations have to pay back the resources that were spent now on these things that are mostly useless maybe, uh, but. The evidence doesn't let you say. So it's possible for Stiglitz to say one thing. It's possible for you and I to say something entirely different, and neither one can point to the evidence. Yeah, I, I, don't, view it, I don't view it as a very scientific enterprise. I view it, it as essentially ideology being wrapped up in scientific-looking statistical estimation. I, it seems to me it's, um, it's too much noise. Well, I, I don't agree with what you said when you started. I don't think most economists do think it works. Or maybe maybe I'm in the wrong cocoon, you know? <laughs> yeah, you need to get out more, Shane, I think. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Although I'm in a different cocoon over here on the East Coast. I'm the only cocoon that has... I'm a George Mason, so we have the same... Um, and I've uh, occasionally I'm in the Stanford cocoon. So we're in the... Thre- just happened to talk about the three places where I say there's an overwhelming right. majority that is skeptical, but... Outside of those three, it's pretty much, I think, the other way. Yeah. Well, Bob Barrow, he's just Yep. Lonely voice <laughs> <laughs> in that in that enclave. Well, I think uh, what was his name is speaking. Who's Barrow's uh, famous macroeconomist at Harvard? The young, younger fellow. Alicina. 
No, no, no. He was because uh, he's a he skeptic Bush's, too. Uh, Council of Economic Advisors. Oh, um, thank you. Thank you. I'm sorry. You never forget that name. But <laughs> he's skeptical. But he what he says is once you get into politics, you become a Keynesian. But that's just the political pressure is just enormous. I, I think, think that's right. It's a terrible view of our ideal, our intellectual opponents, though, <laughs> right? It's not very nice. We don't like it when they attribute our views to, say, being friends of business, which I find repugnant. Uh, so it seems embarrassing to suggest that they hold their views because they like being powerful. Yeah. I think there's some truth to it, but it's not very nice. You want to hold that view? Hold oh, which view? That, that they're um, – I don't know. I don't know. I think – I don't think economists are different from other people. They all like to have their views accepted by everybody else, no matter what their views are. Yeah, we're prone to incentives. There's no doubt about that. I've had to have a tough skin for a long time because I, I believe in efficient markets. <laughs> you get a lot of flack. Right. Um, let's go back to that for a minute. Okay. To finance. We'll get back. Well, let's leave macro. I'm, I will put a link up to the recent essay you wrote on stimulus where you make it, I would call it a theoretical argument against stimulus, not an empirical yeah, there's argument. Yeah, no, there's no data, right? Um, and, and I think basically you're using, and it's interesting how the Chicago School has been pushing this. You're using what, what we would call accounting identities. Right. It's, the money's got to come from somewhere. I, I expressed it as the resources have to come from somewhere. Anything, right. Um, well, I mean, that's the right way to say it, actually. And so I don't understand where the free lunch comes from. There is no free lunch. But the claim, well, the, the, the counterpoint is that, well, there's a free lunch because there are all these unused resources laying around. And then it's a question, and Milton said this also, how, how much of the stimulus goes towards the unused so-called... Uh, well, that's un- the problem of implementation, which is horrendous. Yeah. It's the same problem in regulation. Implementation is always a killer. But let's go back to finance. Um, okay. There's been a big trend in recent years toward what is called behavioral finance. Right. Uh, what's your assessment of that? Well, I think they're, you know, they're very, the behavioral people are very good uh, at describing microeconomic behavior, the behavior of individuals that doesn't seem quite rational. And I think they're very good at that. The jump from there to markets is much more shaky. Explain now, <laughs> There are two types of behavioral economists. There are guys like uh, my friend and colleague Richard Thaler, who are you know, soundly based in psychology. His degree is in economics, but he's, he's become a psychologist, basically, and he's coming from the research in psychology. Now, there are other behavioral finance people who <laughs> are basically what I call anomaly chasers. Yeah. What they're doing is they're looking, they're scouring the data for things that look like market inefficiency, and they classify that as behavioral finance. But to me, it's just data dredging. Well, they they don't tell you about the times they can't find the anomaly. Exactly. So, you know, all economic research involves a multiple comparison problem that never gets stated. A multiple what? The fact that the data has been used by so many other people. And the people using it now use it in so many different ways that they don't report that you have no real basis to evaluate. You have no real statistical basis to come to a conclusion. Yeah, my view is you should you should video your um, your keyboard so we can see your 
your keystrokes, right? <laughs> and then we'd see what you threw out, the dishes that didn't come out of the kitchen because you didn't like the way they tasted or looked. Right. Well, I've had, I've had uh, people say to me, that the people who do this anomaly stuff, when they come and give a paper and I'll say, did you do this, that, or the other thing? And they'll say, yes. And I say, why don't you report it? And they say, it wasn't interesting. Yeah, it wasn't interesting, yeah. It's not publishable either. <laughs> well, that's the problem, that there's a, there's a culling process in the publication process as well. Only, only the eye-catching stuff makes it through. So we started off this conversation talking about efficient markets, and we, we haven't talked about a zillion other things that you've studied or that are important in the field of finance. So I want to try to I'm going to, we've got about eight or so minutes. Okay. Um, one question I'd like to hear you talk about is the issue of a non-specialist. Let's say I'm just a smart, everyday person, and I want to be educated out in the world. Um, what are the lessons for me that that finance has learned that are important in in the – there's obviously a lot of findings, some of which have stood up, some of which had to be modified over time. What do you think we've learned in finance over the last 50 years as it's become more empirical that an educated person should should be able to understand and uh, and use? Well, you know, I'm obviously going to be biased, but I think all of the stuff on efficient markets would, would, would qualify. I think there's been a lot of stuff in the corporate area, corporate governance and all of that stuff that's a huge field in the, in the corporate area that's... Uh, that has penetrated to the to the practical level. Um, option pricing is, the, you know, the Black Scholes options pricing paper, in my view, is the most important paper in economics of this century. Why? Um, because every academic, every economist, whether they go into finance or not, learns that paper, and it created an industry in the. In the you know, in the financial in the applied financial uh, domain, what in the, what else can it can claim that? Um, so, you know, I think we've learned a lot about risk and return. Some of it is intuitive. I mean, no bonds are less risky than, than stocks for the most part, but there's a lot of stuff on which stocks are more or less uh, more risky or less less risky. A lot of stuff on international markets. Now, how, how, what should an ordinary intelligent person know? That's a harder question. Well, let, me, what should, let me turn it over. What should an ordinary intelligent person know about price theory? Yeah. Well, I have some thoughts on that. You, prob- yeah. <laughs> you probably do, too. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, 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 it's difficult. So I, I know lots of very intelligent business people who need some knowledge of what's going on in finance, but not an awful lot, because that's not a big part of their business, you know? Correct. I guess I I would worry about what people think they know that isn't so and the things that they don't know that they should know. Oh, that happens to me all the time. Um, <laughs> when I, I'll, I'll be playing golf with somebody, and they'll ask me what I do, and I tell them I teach finance, and they say, oh, my goodness, I don't know anything about finance. And then they give me a lesson in finance. <laughs> what, would, what do they usually say? Well, they, they tell me all about their smart investments. Yeah. <laughs> do you smile and just take another strike at the ball? Or I do, do you, right. Do you say anything back? No, I don't, but I avoid them in the future. 
It is a um, one of the fascinating things about our profession, and I don't. It must be true for many other professions as well. But um, everybody's an expert, so it, it's um, you know, your, your uh, fifty years of of empirical, incredible in the trenches work is uh, meaningless because that guy had a good month. <laughs> All right. He doesn't. Uh, he doesn't think he has much to learn from you. Indeed, but I, but I, he's making a lot of money. Right, he is right. Sure, he's doing right. great. He knows. But it, it is a. Um, I was really thinking more of practitioners and experts, not of not of lay people. So, I, I assume there are some things that we think we know in finance that may turn out not to be so. Oh, and that, absolutely. And that has that has been a problem. Uh, uh, I guess I'm thinking about a macro, which I know a little bit more about, right? We're thinking about the, the the great moderation and the comfort that that many people had that we had mastered the business cycle, and that turned out not to be true. All uh, right. So I assume there's some aspects of finance that may. Oh, no, absolutely. I mean, it's uh, I, what I say to my students is, I'm showing you the stuff that people have done in the last thirty years, but in twenty years, it may all be irrelevant. Um, so the best I can do is to train you about how to think about these things so that you can absorb stuff that comes along in the future that may overturn what's there now. Um, that's what makes this profession fun, though, I think, is the fact that stuff can get overturned. What are some, all decided, what fun would it be? Yeah, what, what are some of the – well, of course, if it's if – it's, if we only have the illusion of, of understanding or what Hayek called the pretense of knowledge where – we could be doing some dangerous and stupid things under the uh, under the guise of thinking we're making progress. Right. So you have you do have to be careful. Where do you think there are in the next in the near future and maybe the longer future? Where do you think research and finance is going? Oh, gee, I've never been able to answer that question. Um, that's part of the fun of it. You just you just don't know. I would not have been able to predict thirty years ago the the stuff that evolved in those intervening 30 years. No way. Um, so, that's... that's uh, It's kind of a random walk. <laughs> well, I, I don't even think it pays to think about it very much. Uh-huh. Because what happens is, there's so much serendipity in what happens in research. So, uh, my best stuff has always been, I didn't start thinking about writing a great paper. I started thinking about a little problem that just kept working in circles into a bigger problem or had offshoots that were related. So I've beaten many topics to death. <laughs> and as a, as a consequence, I've, I've, I've got a lot of uh, recognition for developing the thing and what started as a little thing developing into something much bigger. Um, so that's, uh, and that's not a predictable process. So you can set lots of little things that end up as nothing. And? Or a student comes to me, a PhD student, and says, I want to write a great thesis. I said, you can't do that. <laughs> I mean, you can't start out to do that. You have to pick a problem and hope it works out into something that will get you a job. Yeah. <laughs> and hopefully a good one. But you can't, if you start saying, I want to come up with a great topic, you won't come up with anything. Well, you recently wrote a very nice essay. We'll put a link up to it uh, called "My Life in Finance" that, that gives an overview of your some of your contributions and um, some of your thinking along the way and how those little problems uh, got started. You start by talking about your 
thesis topic right. where you had five ideas and Merton Miller said four of them weren't very good. Right. Uh, did were any of those? Did you ever go back to any of those four? Um, no, actually. Merton was incredible. He, he had a great eye for stuff that would work and wouldn't work. I went to Belgium for two years to teach. <laughs> And I came back and showed him the stuff I had been working on, and I think he discarded like eight out of ten things. <laughs> he, was, he was right on all of them. <laughs> yeah, well, such is life. Right. Well, it taught me that nobody can work in a vacuum. You really need colleagues around you to really enrich your work. I mean, you get credit for it in the end, but there's a lot of inputs from other people that go into it in the meantime. Well, thanks for sharing some of your wisdom on Econ Talk. Okay, my pleasure. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.